listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is a show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks for joining us for episode 263. Hey, Mark. Hey, Paige. How's your face? My face, considering I just got my stitches out yesterday, is doing really good. How's your leg? (laughs) It's pretty good. I'm off crutches now, walking around, got my steps in at OTC this past week, met some great folks. This week was crazy. So we had the Endeavors Conference. We had OTC, we had the Connected Worker Conference, we had the Amazon Energy Conference, and we had three live podcasts, and our parent company, Modal Point, did a product launch for mCloud, and we did a live stream, and I fell out of bed and hit my head on the nightstand on the way down, had to go to the hospital. (laughs) (laughs) So it's been a busy week. Broke your nose. Oh, broke my nose. Yep, broke my nose. So, But all is good. Good. We're all back together again. Yeah. Yeah. Glad you can breathe. Glad I can breathe. Glad there's not blood everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of being able to breathe and no blood everywhere, (laughs) this is a good review. You want to read it? Okay. Great podcast. I started listening to this podcast at the beginning of the year. I enjoy the topics that are covered so far. Uh, It helps me stay up to date on the industry and bring insight I wouldn't have necessarily thought of. Clever with the F-150 Raptor tracking, <laughs> LOL. Everybody thinks that's a joke. I'm very serious. That's one of my three metrics that I look at. I know it sounds funny, but I'm telling you, it's a great metric if you want to see what's really going on, in especially the unconventionals and the Permian. Um, but speaking of unconventionals and the Permian, this is our normal news show. You want to jump in the first article? Yeah. So Biden administration reveals plan to refill oil reserve. So we talked to us before, our current administration did actually a bunch of releases from our strategic petroleum reserve to help lower the price at the pump. Unfortunately, it didn't really work. We did see a drop in the price of the pump. It had nothing to do with the strategic releases, had everything to do with the supply going up a little bit. And we're going to see prices go back up at the pump very soon as we switch to our summer blend. And that's a normal thing that we do every year, a twice a year switch between our summer and winter blend. It's really interesting. So we talked about earlier when our administration tapped into strategic petroleum reserve, I talked about how it worried me because what it's really there for is in case something really gets bad and we have the ability to power our country and our war machine. And it looks like our current administration isn't really worried about that so much. (laughs) They're looking at purchasing oil to, and they're actually doing futures, which I'll tell you what that is in a second, but they're actually doing future purchasing and they want to put back the 180 million barrels they took out next February. So not a bunch of urgency to get that oil back into strategic reserves. Now, what's interesting is if they time it right, which I think they will, I think the price of crude will be lower, which means we'll basically buy oil at a cheaper price than we sold it for, which is a good thing from a fiscal point of view. Not that our government worries about being fiscally, <laughs> what's the right word? Conservative? Yeah. Right. And, right and, yeah. And, and I mean that as far as well, no, spending the, money you yeah, don't have. I mean, they just print money like it's going out of style. So, But one of the cool things because it's done on futures, if you don't know what a future is, and please no hate mail from the finance people because I know I'm really simplified here, but basically a buyer and seller agree to have an exchange of oil, so many barrels of oil, 
at a certain point, but they don't agree upon the price. They just agree that at this date in the future, which is why it's called future contracts, we'll agree to make this exchange. That document is now becomes an asset, a financial asset that you can trade like other assets like stocks and bonds. So interesting approach here. I just want to hurry up and get the strategic reserve back to where it was. And Paige, even if we put these 180 million barrels back next year, which is what the plan is, it's only half full at that point. That's one of those things that should say pretty near close to darn full all the time. So what's not in here is any type of plan to actually fill the strategic reserve back up. But with midterm elections right around the corner, I bet that becomes something of interest to both political sides. So we'll see where this thing goes. All right. So next article is oil up this week as EU moves closer to Russian ban. You know, I would have lost money on this. The European Union is legitimately looking to ban Russian oil by the end of this year. And they're going to let a certain couple of countries slide by that and give them extra six months just because they had longer term contracts with Russia and right. easily sourced to replace that oil and that gas right smack in the middle of freaking winter. So they don't want their people to freeze. You know, hats off to the EU. I can't believe they're doing this. It's legit. I don't know what's going to happen if Russia loses a big part of this market. Now, with all that said, the other thing that's going on that's not in this article, and actually I have no proof of, I'm just watching crude move around the world, is the Chinese buying of crude has had an uptick tremendously, and then Europe buying crude from China has had an uptick. And so, of course, I'm thinking that the Chinese are buying the Russian oil, and then the exact same oil is being passed back to Europe as a way to get around the sanctions. Once again, I have no proof of that. I'm just watching numbers, and I'm watching barrels move around the world. It is interesting also that OPEC is looking at this and they don't want to step in. And so, you know, I'm wondering if this honeymoon between OPEC and Russia is now on the rocks or headed that way. Because when OPEC doesn't want to step in and help, not that OPEC can do a whole lot, but OPEC can nudge Europe to not put sanctions, not quit buying Russian oil. I wonder if this is OPEC finally making a play saying, you know what, we were forced to work with you, Russia. We've always looked at you as competition. And now that the world doesn't want to buy your oil I think we're going to actually separate our relationship and maybe OPEC will try to increase production, not that I think they can to this year, and actually grab some of that Russian market share. So a bunch of geopolitical stuff going on with this, but EU is legitimately looking to ban oil imports by Russia by the end of this year. And so, you know, this is a huge story. We definitely have to pay attention to this in the future. All right. So the next one is explainer how the U.S. could tighten sanctions on Russia. Boy, this is a really good order. This is Reuters, which, by the way, we just signed a media exclusive media partnership. So welcome awesome. to the family, Reuters. So there's a whole bunch of sanctions in place now, mostly around the finances and bank and the parts and pieces from a awful service point of view that Russia needs to actually produce oil. And then we're also limiting our allies' ability to buy it by interfering with this ability to be moved around the world. But – what we haven't done is attack their banks yet. We've attacked the strike system. I shouldn't say attacks. We've put in sanctions so that a lot of the money Russia normally could use to buy and sell stuff here in the U.S. and in Europe, that money literally can't be transferred anymore. So, of course, then the deals aren't going through. But if you look at Gazprom Bank, which is the largest bank in Russia right now, we haven't really done anything with them. If we put sanctions on them like we do a strike, it would effectively kick them out of the U.S. banking system, and they would not be able to bank with any of American assets. And remember, no matter what Russia says or no matter what the crypto guys said, the worldwide currency of oil is the U.S. dollar. So if you can't deal in U.S. dollars, you can't sell and buy oil. 
The other thing that we could do is we could actually invoke sanctions against any individual, so not countries, but individual, individual companies that did business with Russia. If we did that, that would shut down a whole bunch of commerce with all the little guys all around the world still doing business with Russia, including buying a lot of their grain. So there's a bunch of stuff that we can do. There's other leveraged levers that we can pull. I've called our current administration wrong, and I'll admit that. You know, when all this first started, I didn't think they were going the sanctions as hard as they're actually where they are now. But to put it in perspective, from one to ten, we're at about a five okay. on the sanctions. Initially, we started about a two. I didn't think they were go past the three, and our current administration has. So they're playing tough ball, and we have other levers that we can pull. So the Russian economy's in the tanks right now. Their ruble's not worth hardly anything. They're struggling with what's going on in Ukraine. A lot of the G seven countries, a lot of the westernized countries have literally said, Russia, we don't condone this at all. We're going to do everything we can, including, you know, individual companies that have lost money by pulling their operations out of Russia because they protest this. You know, you look at the McDonald's and the Kentucky Fried Chickens that have, you know, pulled their people, their facilities out and their money. So, you know, Russia, you're not in a good place right now. It's however we come out of this, it's not going to be the clean, victorious, tons of money that Putin thought was going to come from a quick win in Ukraine. It's just not going to be that way. So I don't know what next steps are. I think what's probably going to happen is going to be some type of brokerage of a deal where Putin tries to look like he came out really well. I think the U.S. will try to take credit for what happened, which the U.S. only could take part of credit for that. But the biggest thing in all of this page is this is another check mark in this shortage of energy that the world's facing this year and for next year. So until this gets settled, until these sanctions get agreed upon or either taken away because Russia steps back in line. This is just another lack of energy for the world because what's going on geopolitically with Russia. So once again, we got to really keep an eye on what's going on with this. The U.S. has other levers they're going to pull. Let's see if they actually pull them. Well, speculation is that Putin's sick, so... Really? Yeah. It could be conspiracy stuff. I don't know. But there's been videos of his hands trembling and not being able to walk well and all kinds of stuff. They're look look at you. My... got your own sources like I do. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I haven't heard of that. That's good that you have. <laughs> all right. So next article is GOM oil drilling makes too little too late comeback. Yeah, this is a good story. It's actually a good story. If you have any friends that are talking about how the oil and gas companies don't want to drill more oil because they don't want to lower prices, have them read this. The Gulf of Mexico actually, especially not deep water, so on the shelf of Gulf of Mexico, is very well studied. We understand the geology. We understand construction. We understand the delays. If you think of any place in the world where we can go into production quick and effectively, it's probably Gulf of Mexico is probably the top. Right. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It still takes years. It still may take 10 years from the moment you start doing EMP work to actually go in production. And that's what the world doesn't understand. So there's a bunch of activity. There's a bunch of new reservoirs that are coming online. There's a bunch of stuff going in production in the Gulf of Mexico. But it's going to be years before that oil hits the market to take care of these supply constraints that we're dealing with. Especially in deep water. Well, and, and that's not counting deep water. Deep water is a whole other mess of its right. own. The cool thing, though, now that we've been above $100 a barrel for a while, I was talking to somebody, at, I think it was at Amazon, their energy event I was at. And they're starting to see interest, renewed interest in deep water, which is really cool because that's where the cool technology and the big dollars are, is yeah. deep water, ultra deep water. And if all stays above $100 a barrel, it makes fiscal sense for us to go back in deep water Gulf of Mexico. The other thing is we get a little bit heavier crude, which our refineries like better. Right. There's a bunch of projects in Gulf of Mexico. This article lists them all. It's all the players that you know and maybe some of the ones that you don't. I mean, it's Chevron and Exxon and Shell, Murphy Oil. 
And so the future production is coming from the Gulf of Mexico, but it's not going to happen this year. And it's, a lot of it's not going to happen next year. And then in the end of 23 and beginning of 2024, when this all starts coming online, the other thing that happens is a lot of those reservoirs, the older reservoirs are also declining. So in some ways, we're replacing the oil that would naturally decline. So by far, we're not going to flood the market. This is why I said in my predictions in November of last year that we're in a 10-year bull run in the oil and gas industry. No matter what goes on geopolitically, there's going to be a demand that we can't meet for a decade. And it's just going to be, it's good for us. It's not good for the world, but it's good for the people in the industry. The other thing is, it looks like the U.S. Energy Administration, so EIS, is saying that production is going to remain flat through 2023, which I agree with. And I just rattled off why. The other piece of this is these offshore projects that everybody wants everybody to kick off overnight. They cost billions of dollars. Yeah. They're not millions. They're <laughs> billions. So if you're, you know, if you're complaining about the price of the pump and you're complaining that Exxon's not producing oil quick enough, write them a check for a billion dollars. They need a hundred of those to do one of these projects, right? Right. right. You know, people just hold True to course, I'm telling you, production will come back. It's going to be a couple of years, and the Gulf of Mexico is play a big part of that. Okay, so the next one is U.S. rig count ticks higher as oil prices head for another weekly gain. Yeah, yeah we're just talking about this. Now, earlier I was talking about really Gulf of Mexico, so offshore, which is a different beast than onshore. Oh, yeah. But the total rig count has gone up, and it's actually almost over 250 rigs higher from last year at this time, year to date, which is a great thing, 250 extra rigs. Yeah, no kidding. They're blowing and going. But the thing that's happening, Paige, and I've talked to too many people that operate service companies in the Permian, is they can't get things like drill stem and valves and blowout preventers. So even though the rigs are going up, there's going to be a delay in production because of the literally physical parts and pieces we need to turn that hole in the ground to producing oil well. And we have another huge impact our supply chain. I've been watching, guy was making fun of me with my Raptor metrics that I watched, but the other thing is the Baltic Dry Index. I'm looking at all these sea cans all over the world, and there's a huge pileup of sea cans once again in China because of their shutdown. So you're in all this stuff that we've bought here in the U.S. and Europe that should have been shipped here, and just like earlier, like the end of last year and the beginning of this year when there's all those supply chain constraints, there's going to be another wave of those coming in about two months, right? So around July or August, we'll be hit with another supply chain because of the China lockdown, which means there's going to still be a gap in the parts and pieces we need in the oil field and what we're able to get our hands on. So, you know, unfortunately, even on land, which is quicker to go in production, we're having supply chain issues and it's just, we're not going to be able to get production back up where the world needs it. We will, but it's going to be another year or two, even on land. Hmm. Next one is transportation proposes near 1 million fine for colonial pipeline one year after hack. Yeah, so basically when the different federal agencies and actually state agencies in this case, and actually Colonial Pipeline's own internal group, when they did these investigations, y'all remember this on the news, the pipeline got hacked. The perception of the loss of gasoline probably impacted gas lines more than actually loss of gasoline. But we had gas lines on the East Coast for a couple of days. We had panic. We had price gouging because one of the major supplies of retail gasoline was cut down for a couple of days and it was a cyber attack. After everything's all said and done, basically, there's a, several things that Colonial should have done that they didn't do. And there's several things they shouldn't have done that they did do. And so all these agencies, including the Department of Homeland Security, because you may not know this, but pipelines are considered critical right. infrastructure. Yeah, in the US. I, I they, did know that. Yeah. They follow the Department of Homeland Security. That's why you have to have a Twit card to go on site if you actually want to go visit pipelines. But anyway, they basically all came together and said, you know what? You screwed up. It was bad. It could have been worse. You're getting fined right at a million dollars. Don't do this again. But the other thing that came out of this that's actually not in this article is the organization PHMSA actually has written a white paper on what everything the Colonial did wrong. And with Colonial's endorsement, they're now 
putting this out there for free to other pipeline operators. So they took the bad thing that happened to Colonial. They find them, and actually they could have find them twice as much. They only find them about half as much as they could have find them because their intent more or less was pure. But they're using it as a test example, and they're sharing this information with their pipeline operators, hoping to help prevent this from happening again, which I think is cool. So at least something good came out of this. Yeah, so these were regulations that were already in place that they've... Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I was like, did they enact new laws and then no, go, hey... No, both okay. from a cybersecurity laws, regulations point of view, from a reporting point of view, from a safety point of view, and also an environmental point of view. So they had different agencies that are responsible for that. They all pinged them and they came together with... Okay. So they're all in yeah. those jurisdictions. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. Now I understand. Is now the time for the NOPEC bill? <laughs> <laughs> so I know I'm old. But I really know I'm old because I think this is the third time in my career in the oil and gas industry that this NOPEC bill comes back. It comes back every 10 or 15 years for various reasons. And basically, I guess it's about 20 years ago is the last time I think this thing came up. Basically, the legislation makes it legal for the U.S. to sue OPEC, which is a cartel for price fixing, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the reality is we can sue OPEC all you want. They don't have to abide by our court decisions because they're their own country, our own mix of countries, right? In a different right. part of the world. Yeah. It's not like they're all down the street from us in, you know, Sugarland, Texas or something. They have to listen. But what it would do is affect their ability to have financial transactions with us in Europe, which would be a big impact to OPEC. You know, Paige, I have a hard time with this. So the whole reason that they would sign this bill is they're basically saying OPEC is a monopoly and that it hurts the U.S. consumer. And so we want the ability to sue them. OPEC's not a monopoly in my mind. Right, OPEC's a cartel. They control a lot. But us and Russia, both of us, if we wanted to, could produce as much oil as OPEC. Now, we don't for different reasons. We don't here today because of what's going on with our current political administration. Russia isn't doing it right now because they don't have enough global buyers for it. But to me, just because OPEC does it better because they control everything than Russia and U.S. doesn't mean that they have a monopoly on it. They're just a group of countries that have banded together and decided to help try to control the price of oil. Now, in the up until, say, the 90s, I would have said yes, that OPEC did have a monopoly because they had so much of the world's supply. So number one, I don't think that even the legislation has a leg to stand on. Number two, I don't think it's enforceable. And number three, you know, when you say OPEC, you really got to say Saudi Arabia. That's the main player in OPEC. And Saudi Arabia has been a friend with the U.S. for a very long time. A lot of their neighbors don't like them because they're friends of the U.S. And our current administration hasn't been giving them any love. And so... You I mean, know, are you surprised? Yeah, that's a hard one to call, right? So we need at least one very strong ally in the Middle East. And when I say strong, I basically mean somebody that can hold down airports no matter what happens so that our planes can refuel and get repaired. We need bare men on that if there's ever a war in the Middle East so that we can jump in. And Saudi Arabia is that country. But then they cut reporters up into little pieces and put them in a bag and ship them off, right? So it, it's really a hard thing to call. But just from this article, I'm going to stick to this article for now. The NOPEC bill, first thing, it's not going to pass. Second thing, it's not enforceable. And the third thing is I'm not even sure if it would help things. What we really need to do is to have the U.S. production be unconstrained and let just market forces control U.S. production, not politics. And it's too late now after Ukraine, but I really would have liked to see the U.S. and Russia become buddies again, like they were after World War II. Not that we can fix that now. So, you know, back to this article, is, is it time for the NOPEC bill? No. And even if it is, will they pass it? No. And if they do pass it, I think it would make things worse. So let's just hope this doesn't go anywhere. And, you know, what is this, 2022? So mark my words, people, about 2033, 2035, we'll see this NOPEC bill come back. <laughs> All right. So the next one up. Renewable electricity powered California just shy of 100% for the first time in history. 
So I'm not making fun of I'm just being very serious here. This is freaking awesome. Just the fact they were able to do this, even if it's only for a few minutes, and the truth between you and me and our 2 million listeners is it wasn't really 100%. It was freaking close. It was like 98.7%, right? Actually, it was 99.87. Yeah, so it was really close. But I think this is amazing. Now, does this mean that renewables can replace hydrocarbons? No. This means that at this point in time in California, the demand for electricity was balanced by the amount of wind and sun that was outside. And so they were able to run everything off 100% or close to it. Just being able to pull it off, I think, is quite an accomplishment. You know, renewables have their place. You've heard me say this a million times. The rush to push people into renewables and push markets and renewables hurts you and this planet way more than sticking to using hydrocarbons. Let us get there. Let the market drive this. I mean, California, I'm proud of you for actually doing this. This is quite an accomplishment. I'd like to see you do more of this. At the same time, California, your energy prices are the highest in the country. Your fuel prices are the highest in the country. Your people are leaving in masses because it's so expensive to live there. So it's a trade-off. You know, do you want to have a state that has no population, but you run it 100% renewable? That's great. I don't know who's going to pay the taxes. <laughs> running. So there should be balance there. And now I I'm kind of making fun, but 100% sincerity. I think it's awesome they pull this off. I would love to see more of this sort of stuff where it made fiscal sense, not because it's some government mandate or something subsidized. You know, if you think about states that produce wind and solar, we're the number one here in Texas. I would like to see more states, you know, challenge us in California for that. So good job, California. Okay. So next one is record fuel exports from USA Gulf Coast drain tanks. Okay, this is what I talked about earlier in this year, and this is a great story that's written around this. So most of our refining capacity is in the Gulf Coast of the U.S., and our refiners produce everything from gasoline, jet fuel, diesel, to all these petrochemicals used to make everything that's in our modern life. And so if you're a refinery page and you have a choice between producing more gasoline for the U.S. market at a 3% profit margin or producing more ethylene for a Latin America market at a 15% margin – which one are you going to do? The 15%, <laughs> 15 margin, right. right? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Then what happens to the gasoline prices in the U.S. since you're not making gasoline? There's a shortage of gasoline because you're making money doing something else. Right. And gasoline prices go up. Yes. So we got to have to be real careful here. And y'all have heard me say this over the years that our government, regardless of what political side's in power, you know, one side hates us and one side had no idea what we're doing. Neither side's a great friend to our industry. But – our current administrations for the last, say, 12 or 16 years, they only really look at upstream when they talk about oil and gas. And they've yes. ignored downstream, which is good because they haven't stuck their finger in it. Exactly. My problem with this is the politicians are going to start talking about how the refineries are raping American people and they're selling their products to Latin America instead of making gasoline. Not understand that it's just a business decision based on profitability. And what we don't need is our politicians sticking their fingers in the refinery's business because their margins are so slim. And if we push them just a little bit, those margins will disappear and they're not making money, which means the refineries will move outside the U.S. And I'm telling you, if you're worried about the environment, you want these refineries here and in Europe. You don't want them in China. Where they're regulated. Where they're regulated. People report you know, incidents and stuff. But what's happening is there's just a strong demand for refined products. And I've been telling everybody this, and countries are willing to pay more for these refined products than our refiners can make in retail fuels. So, you know, at some point, if we want fuel prices to come down here in the U.S., we have to be able to outcompete the foreign buyers. And that's not happening anytime soon. All right. So the next one is diesel prices hit a new record on Wednesday. This is one of the stories that nobody's talking about. The world is in the diesel shortage and it's getting worse Diesel prices are now 
a higher than price for gasoline. Some of the diesel prices, if you look at year upon year, has gone up 60, 70, 75% from last year at the same time. And diesel is the major cost in transportation and logistics and moving stuff around. And so this is not good for the world. This affects things like construction projects in Africa, bridge building in China, you know, farm production in Europe. But it also affects things like your ability to get toilet paper. And please, God, let's not go back to 2020. That's why everybody needs a bidet. (laughs) That's what it is. We were just talking about that. We're talking about a way to get sidetracked. Yeah. Um, Anyway. Yeah. So the supply chain here in the U.S., has not repaired itself. It has not got back to where it was pre-pandemic, and it keeps being hit by things. Like I said, there's another huge hit coming from the lack of sea cans from China. With these diesel prices up, truckers can't afford to move stuff around, and they're simply just not going to move things around. Give it a little while, and the market will correct what they're paying. These truckers will have to go up because their fuel prices go up, but right now they're not. And so this is just a mess for the world. And our diesel demand will not equal supply again, Maybe for three or four years, right? So this is a long-term problem, and it's not going away anytime soon. Mm. You know, so if you're one of those truck drivers that keeps America running, I know this is killing your margins, and I know you got to make hard decisions like slowing down to save fuel. But if you slow down, then you don't get the performance bonus you get paid, and I know you got families to feed. So let's just hope something happens and we get these diesel prices down. But unfortunately, I don't see anything that's going to bring them down for another year or two. Okay, so last one, 60% of oil and gas workers admit their life feels out of control. You know, we haven't really talked about mental health on this show too much, but it's really important. And you and I both have had professional help over the years, and it's one of the best things you can ever do for yourself. I see a therapist every two weeks. Yeah. And so, you know, our industry right now is, from a mental point of view, think about it, Paige, we've been through eight years of hell. Yeah. I mean, literally eight years of hell. Oil went negative for the first time in my lifetime. Massive layoffs during a freaking pandemic, during all this social unrest, right? During all these supply chain issues. The price of oil has come back. We can't get parts and pieces. We can't hire people. So we're busy right now, but we can't produce like we want to produce. And that wears people down mentally and physically. Yeah. That, that type of stress on top of you. So one of the things I want to do is like if you're in our audience and you feel like things are getting to you and there's nobody to talk to, there's several really great organizations out there. We'll put a couple of links in the show notes that are free that you can sit down and talk to. The other thing is get out of your cube, get out of your house, get out of your driller shack. Go sit in the sun for 15 minutes. Talk to your friends, talk yes. to your wife, right? Yes. Or your Husband. significant other, right? Even yeah. your dog, right? Don't let it get to the point where you could do something stupid. It's not f- worth it. Yeah. All right. So... With all that said, you know what, Paige? What? I'm still waiting for our audience to get back to us. So we're looking at two things to give away for IBM, either an IBM coin, which would be collectible, or an NFT generated by IBM itself, non-fungible token. Hmm. So audience, let me know which one of those twos that you want. As far as I know, I think if we start giving away NFTs, we'll be the first podcast to ever do that. Right? Really? On a regular basis. As far as I can tell, yeah. Especially an NFT from somebody like IBM. Hey. Might be worth a gazillion dollars. <laughs> oh, yeah, I bet. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of gazillion, gazillion dollars, what's the weekly rig count at? The United States is at 705. We're up seven from last time. Canada is at 91, down four. Internationally, 806, down nine. Okay. Don't like those down numbers, but still the total recount's looking good. The other thing is, if you want to have a cool place to go work and you're here in Houston, go find the Canon, go up the front desk and say, I love OGGN, and they will give you a free day. 
pass. Won't try to sell you anything. It'd just be funny if one of the receptionists was like, oh, cool. It just like dismisses it. <laughs> no, they won't do that to you. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Next thing, while you're out there roaming around in the interwebs, go to LinkedIn, search for Oil and Gas Global Network, OGG, and just sign up for both our page and our group. That's where we get notified of all the cool stuff we're doing, like our monthly live stream, our industry mixers, or where we're doing live podcasts. Or we got some other cool stuff coming. So just go hang out there. And while you're out there, go to either OGGN.com or OilAndGasThisWeek.com. If you have a question, give us a question for our first Friday Q&A, which is right around the corner. Remember, the goal is not to stump Paige and I. The goal is to help educate our audiences. Monthly events newsletter, you've heard me say it a million times. You want all the monthly uh, Oil & Gas events in your inbox once a month, sign up. The link's in the show. It's also free. And if you'd like myself or any of our experts to come to your event, do a live podcast, do a keynote, let us know. We're happy to do that sort of stuff. We actually love doing stuff, especially with kids and, and schools out there. Oh, a whole lot going on. Yep. You ready to get out of here, Paige? Yes. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Hope everybody had a great Mother's Day. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.